0: Bum, 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 bum. Right, everyone, and welcome to Now It's Dark. Uh, this is Tim, and just like the last episode, we'll be continuing with a series of rotating guests. As I mentioned in the last episode, Mike has actually left the country. He's back in America right now. He will be moving to England eventually, but we're going to continue the show with a series of guests. Uh, and starting from our last episode as well, full episodes will now be exclusive to our patrons at patreon.com slash Dark. We'll also be making some of our back catalog Patreon only. And some of our past episodes and shorter versions of each episode going forward will still be available for free, and that out of the way, uh, let's get into today's episode. Today, we're going to be talking about what is probably the biggest indie success stories in a while. Everything, everywhere, all at once. The quirky sci fi film from the Daniels, Daniel Kwan, and Daniel Scheinert, has surpassed Hereditary as A24's highest grossing film. It's made $101 million globally as of this recording. On a budget of anywhere between 14 and 25 million dollars. It has been enthusiastically embraced by both critics with a 95% on Rotten Tomatoes and fans. Uh, It initially landed in the top 10 of IMDB's top 250 films. It's since gone down to about 225. And it landed as the first or as the highest-rated film on Letterboxd for a while. Uh, I think three weeks after its release, it was already there. It's now gone down to about 13 but nonetheless it, it's gotten a huge uh response amongst fans and the film recently began its oscar campaign and and may stand to win big this year with academy voters now as uh with the last episode we will have a guest on today and today we're joined uh to talk about and perhaps debate this film by my friend eric pleasy eric welcome to the episode
1: thanks for having me on i'm glad to be here uh If you don't know me, my name is Eric Pleasy. I am here with uh, Tim in Busan, and I have a production company here. It's called Buku Production, uh, and I also host a radio show on movies as well in this city. Uh, I enjoy films, and I am ready to talk about this movie.
0: And we've actually worked in a number of films together, too. Um, how many films have we actually done together? You
1: know, I think we've done about, I would say, four shorts, maybe five, and music video, and then two features.
0: Yeah, yeah. So we have uh, we go back quite a long ways. We, we've been making movies ourselves. But I know, uh, probably more than anyone I know, uh, you are a huge movie buff. You watch a ton of movies. On average, in a week... How many movies do you think you actually watch?
1: I think I stick to my one-a-day movie. Mm -hmm. Um, One-a-day movie is a loose term these days because... For example, there's series like Inside Man with Daniel Tucci that I just watched. It's only four episodes, kind of like a movie. They're definitely setting it up for a sequel, but uh, something like that would, you know, I'd watch it in a day. It only takes two hours. Um, Recently, uh, just because of this, I rewatched everything everywhere all at once. Uh, And, you know, the kind of list goes on and on. I try to go to the cinema at least once a week as well, uh, especially these days that uh, things are opened back up. I was able to go catch whatever big movie is uh, available. I have no discrimination for films. Uh, I paid, even paid extra to go see Moonfall in uh, Dolby Atmos to get the full experience. Oh, wow. So I uh, was that, I, yeah, by the way? It, Moonfall was uh, pretty good. You know, it had all the things I wanted it to have. And uh, I think that's going to be, you know, one of my main criteria for judging films is that when you see something and you kind of have some expectations, as long as they kind of go above whatever you think the movie is going to be like, I feel like that qualifies it as a good movie. Um, You know, for example, anything in the Fast and Furious franchise, there's like three or four things I need to see a -hmm. couple big set pieces, same with Bond, Um, even the film Uncharted, which, uh, you know, kind of got panned as not being that great. Uh, It did have some, you know, pretty awesome set pieces as well. Uh, That being said, uh, we are going to be spoiling stuff. I don't know if you want to preface everything. (laughs) Yeah, that's
0: actually a very good point. Uh, As we get more into everything everywhere all at once, uh, it's probably good to point out right now, we will be spoiling the film. In a weird way, this is kind of a film that's hard to spoil because it's so wild. It's so crazy. There's so many plot points, but Mm. there are definitely spoilers. And if you haven't seen the film yet, you might want to wait and watch or listen to this episode later once you've seen the film.
1: That being said, we are going to give some insights that could make it better to see. Uh, You know, some people are more averse to spoilers than others. For me, I hear spoilers quite often, especially for big, you know, like action or Marvel movies, if I can't catch them. Usually it'll come up as a spoiler too within a couple days. Yep. So the world we're living in nowadays, uh, spoilers are something I think people deal with. And, you know, also, though, that being said, I do like to go in as cold as possible. I try not to watch too many trailers. I don't know if you like watching trailers or not.
0: No, I, I actually like posters and images. Oh, OK. Like uh, recently, the, the new Aronofsky film, The Whale. Mm. Uh, I think the trailer was just released yesterday. I haven't watched it yet, but that one image... Of Brendan Fraser, where you just kind of see a, basically a close-up of him, for me that's more interesting and inspiring because that makes me think about what this movie could be about rather than seeing a trailer and kind of having that image spoiled for me in a way.
1: And you know, uh, with uh, the job that I do, especially looking up a lot of movie news, which I also report on, uh, it can be hard to avoid at least impressions from you know the hype that people give a lot of these things. For example, The Whale, you know, everyone's saying it's going to be Brendan Fraser's big comeback, so you automatically have some expectations going in, and uh, because it's an Aronofsky film, maybe you don't know what to expect. Uh, It could be very pleasant, probably, uh, I don't know if it's going to be more wrestler or more mother. Uh, I guess we'll have to wait and see.
0: Well, because it is an Aronofsky film, I think it's probably going to be unpleasant, (laughs) to be honest. I mean, he does kind of traffic in uncomfortable subject matters, I Mm -hmm. mean... Mother was, was a very hard movie to watch. Uh, Requiem for a Dream is especially hard to watch. But, you know, you are right in that this does seem to be kind of the a, a softer side of Aronofsky.
1: And, you know, it could be with age. It could be after, uh, you know, some critical ups and downs. Maybe he's also on the uptick. But that being said, uh, you know, any time I can get a chance to go in as cold as possible, I try to do that just because it's kind of a rare thing these days to... Really, you know, kind of be in the movie world, you know, just in general, looking through your newsfeed and stuff and not seeing or hearing about something. Uh, I am jealous of people who are oblivious to most movies, you know, they do exist out there and they kind of can go into something and be like, oh, I've never heard of this person who is, you know, The Rock or something like that. Yes,
0: yes. It's, it's definitely uh, a gift in a way when you go into a movie without any expectations and, and are pleasantly surprised. And listen, uh, speaking about everything, everywhere, all at once, let's get into it a little bit. Uh, The synopsis of the film, if you haven't seen it yet, if you haven't heard about it yet, it's basically about a Chinese immigrant played by Michelle Yeoh and her husband, played by Kihi Kwan. Uh, Who discover that there are multiple universes, a, a multiverse, as they contend with an audit from an IRS agent played by Jamie Lee Curtis, a troubled daughter played by Stephanie Hsu, and a demanding patriarch played by the magnificent James Hong. The film is influenced by a, by a whole world of other films. Uh, you can see the influence of Jackie Chan movies, who was actually the Daniels' original choice for the lead in this. It was supposed to be him, and Michelle Yeoh was supposed to play his wife. Hmm. But when he was unavailable, they ended up switching it. Um, You can also see the influence of Stephen Chow films, Wong Kar Wai films, uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey, Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia. I know the cinematographer for the film mentioned both of those So I wanted to ask you, as someone who was, I remember us talking about this probably, oh, could have been a year ago. Yes. And you were very excited about this because you were already a fan of the Daniels.
1: Uh, Yeah, I was a fan of the Daniels uh, ever since, I don't know if you saw Swiss Army Man in theaters, I actually to. have
0: not seen the film. This is the only Daniels film I've seen. So, Well, they had
1: two. Yes. <laughs> um,
0: and so Swiss Army Man was
1: the first one. I think I became aware of them, though, from their music videos, uh, like that music video for DJ Snake. I think it's Turned on for What? They yep. just had very creative and uh, interesting visuals. If you haven't seen that, I would say that is a good entry into the kind of shenanigans you're going to get in Everything Everywhere All at Once. Uh, That being said, you know, uh, when I first saw Swiss Army Man, I heard that a lot of people hated it. Mm -hmm. It's a very divisive movie because it's about Paul Dano and uh, uh, Daniel Radcliffe, uh, who is a corpse, Mm -hmm. um, and he needs to use that corpse to escape an island. Uh, Again, I don't want to spoil too much for that, but it does involve a lot of, you know, kind of lewd humor, including like fart jokes and other things that, uh, you know, maybe some people don't like. Uh, That being said, though, what kind of caught my eye with the Daniels is that they said that they absolutely hated, like, fart jokes and many of the uh, different things in Swiss Army Man, and because they didn't like those things, they knew that if they were going to put them in a movie, they had to be good enough for them to like So they're clever, and it's actually a very interesting contemplation about loneliness. Uh, There are many levels to that movie, so I'd recommend going and seeing that. Uh, But that was pretty much my first entry into the—they're just called Daniel's universe.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Yeah, I was very intrigued by listening to you talk about them, and I I remember seeing trailers for this film— before it arrived in Korea. I, I remember hearing a lot about it from friends, you know, online. There was a lot of talk about this on social media. One friend of mine actually posted on Facebook, this was the best movie she's ever seen in her life. Ooh. And so it made me intrigued by this movie. But also, I got to be honest, a little bit hesitant. When I hear superlatives like that for films, mm-hmm. it kind of makes me wonder, like, okay, is this going to live up to the hype? Because the bar is raised very high when you hear a statement like that
1: that's true and especially these days uh you know i think it's even more difficult because there are so many people who kind of live in those uh, superlative worlds of you know the worst or the best ever uh, is often thrown around but for me i thought this was maybe the best film i've seen in four years which is saying at least uh, you know a thousand films out of a thousand films I've yeah, seen. Right. This is the best one. So again, maybe it is the best one they've seen because they don't watch as many movies as us. That's uh, another possibility. So, uh, but for me, when I did watch it, I was really, really uh, impacted. My first impression. Now, of course, since then, I've tried to go back and watch it over and over again. How
0: many times have you seen it, by the way?
1: I think I've seen it about maybe four times five times maybe um you know it was playing at the film festival here i missed it i wish i could have seen it on the even bigger than normal big outdoor uh, (laughs) yeah we're we're lucky to live in a city that has a gigantic screen uh, for an outdoor cinema um but that being said i was able to catch it in the theaters and i was able to watch it at home so it was kind of nice to like see it do its entire run and then kind of come to Korea and then do its run here. It didn't have, uh, you know, as an impactful of, you know, I guess an impression as you would think. But that being said, it's still doing pretty good, even nowadays. And I'm sure it's only going to get bigger. Of course, we're going to talk about the run a little bit more in depth, uh, especially with it leading up to Oscar season. Uh, But because we're just starting uh, the initial impression, when did you see it?
0: I saw it actually pretty recently Mm -hmm. uh, with a group of friends. And once again, my expectations for this movie were already very, very high. It it had been hyped up so much for me. So I was going into it with a little bit more of a critical eye. I am kind of a contrarian in that way. If I hear that a movie's really great and I don't already know the director or I'm not already a fan of the director, then I'm going to go in and kind of I don't know, have this attitude of like, okay, are you really that good? Mm. Are you really going to be... And I guess in a way that colors my first impression of the film. Now, I've only seen it once. Yeah. I wasn't able to catch it at the film festival either. So it may be one of those things where I go back to it later and think, okay, you know, this wasn't as bad as I thought or my my initial impression maybe was not uh, as fair as it should be. But I can say off the bat, if you haven't guessed... I was not as much of a fan of this movie as you were. Mm -hmm. And as we'll get into a little bit later, I think the success of this film, uh, or I should say the most interesting thing about the film is what it says about how movies are received today and the kinds of movies that resonate today. I think that's the interesting story about this rather than the film itself. That said... I do appreciate uh, certain aspects of the film a lot. And before we kind of get into maybe a little debate over what the film was about and why it's so popular, I, I thought it'd be interesting just to kind of review some interesting facts okay. about this movie, because there is a lot of cool stuff mm-hmm. that uh, kind of went into this film. The first thing I'll probably mention is that apparently the uh, Daniels turned down Loki, the Marvel film, to direct this, and they called everything everywhere at once... Uh, Our version of a Marvel film
1: that is interesting for many reasons I'm wondering if it's the film or the TV show Loki is a a television show yes Um, and the interesting things are one that this was executive produced by the Russo Brothers so Mm -hmm. uh, of course you have a Marvel I guess access point there Um, and also that uh, one of the stars as you mentioned before from this, uh, the wonderful uh, Ki Kwan is also in Loki season two. So yes. He got cast in that. So After this film. After this film. And uh, recently he was at a convention. He saw Harrison Ford there. Yes. This is a very touching re... Uh, I mean, people can go look up the photo. I think it's great. Uh, but I do think that there are some strong connections to... Uh, I guess, yeah, like they said, this is their kind of Marvel movie. Uh, that they would want to see. It's definitely about having superpowers. And, yes. uh, you know, it's nowadays along the lines of, you know, especially with Spider-Man and Doctor Strange and I guess you could say Ant-Man, they're all jumping into the multiverse. Yes. Um, so the, I kind of think the collective consciousness of, superhero fans was ready to embrace a movie like this. Uh, So it does come down to some pretty good timing for them uh, because I'm sure they turned Loki down and then they came out with this one, which is again, very similar to the premise of Loki where they're trying to control the timeline and they have like an alpha timeline or master timeline. Um, If you haven't seen it, it's not spoiling too much. Uh, But again, that's kind of dealing with different timelines uh, of course, for that series.
0: Well, yeah, I, I kind of thought of this movie as an indie superhero movie. Like mm. that's kind of the the genre or subgenre I think this fits into. And I think it is kind of telling in a way that they turned down a Marvel movie, but ended up kind of working in the same lane as yeah. Marvel in terms of this multiverse concept, which we'll come back to a little bit later. I also want to mention, too, uh, probably my favorite part of this whole narrative about the film and its reception is Kihe Kwan, mm. because I'm one of the few people out there who thinks Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom is the best Indiana Jones movie. It's my favorite one.
1: Better than the Crystal Skull? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, nothing's better than that. Um, and I've always been a fan of short rounds. Mm. And uh, so seeing him come back for me is especially heartwarming. Uh, I was a, I'm a bigger fan of Temple of Doom uh, than I am the Goonies. Okay. And um, yeah, just seeing that picture of him and Harrison Ford, hearing the story about that too, because he, he Kwan said, or he, he Kwan said, um, I, I was at some event, and Harrison Ford was there to kind of present Indiana Jones Mm five. And he kind of approached him thinking like, does he know who I am? Yeah. And apparently Harrison Ford said, are you short round? Oh. And, uh, and he said, yes, Indy. Hey. And they, <laughs> they kind of hugged. And yeah, I mean, that's just an awesome story. And like every interview you see with Kihi Kwan, he just seems like the nicest guy. So like hearing that he had, you know, a, a long series of, of kind of lost years where after the Goonies, he didn't really make films too much. I think he became like a stunt coordinator or something. Well, and he's like,
1: I think he still made films. He didn't act in films, though.
0: He didn't act in films. That's what I mean. And and hearing that he was pretty much ready to quit, and then he came back, for me, that's really heartwarming. Like, that's that's my favorite part of the, the saga of this film.
1: Well, you know, uh, just listening to him talk about his, I guess, entry into acting, which is kind of like being an immigrant. And of course, these themes are going to come up later, but coming to America from Vietnam, Uh, after spending time in a refugee camp in Hong Kong, and then getting a chance to, I guess, his first foray into film, meeting with Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, and Harrison Ford, uh, not really knowing anything about Star Wars or about Indiana Jones, and then going and shooting Temple of Doom and not even seeing any of them. You know, they wouldn't really see any of that until after. Uh, It is really amazing that he fell in love after making a film, and then he kind of never lost the bug. You know, he went to film school. Like you said, he was a stunt coordinator working on many great Hong Kong films. Of course, we're going to talk about Wong Kar-wai, uh, as someone who comes up in, his, you know, in uh, a lot of different aspects for this movie. Um, and then, you know, getting a chance after seeing, again, Michelle Yeoh in Crazy Rich Asians and getting some, you know, FOMO and feeling like he needs to jump back in. Uh, and then even to the fact that he was... I believe in an interview, he said that after two weeks of him deciding to jump back into acting, this movie came uh, in front of him and then he got the part. So a lot of things worked out. uh, And this story, again, one of many great arcs uh, that's going to be told, I'm sure, and kind of promoted uh, is uh, maybe one of the reasons why people are enjoying the movie so much nowadays is because... Out of its own narrative, it has this meta-narrative about all these things coming together and uh, just making it more endearing. Uh, Him being a big part of that.
0: Yes, absolutely. And there is kind of this almost multiverse, you know, subtext to the making of the film, which is really interesting. There's a lot of fortuitous things that happened. Uh, For example, production designer Jason Kisvardi was actually audited by the IRS during the production of this. And actually brought in copies of some of his paperwork for props in the film, to use as props.
1: Well, you know, there are a lot of taxes involved uh, in this movie. Uh, It is a big plot point. But what I like is that, you know, they really nailed the sense of, uh, I guess, a family living together, having a business. Um, and just trying to deal with the weight of the taxes, it is kind of funny that they have firsthand experience, uh, because of the production design, uh, really nailing it down. But also I think it impacted just, you know, just having that idea of, you know, inevitability as they say, death and taxes, uh, being a big part of it. Uh, and for them, it seems for the Daniels, it seems like they have a lot of these ideas swirling around and they said, Oftentimes when they decide to make a movie, they like to wait until like maybe 10 of their ideas line up. So maybe, yeah, this happened to their production designer and, you know, oh, that's one idea that pops in. And then, oh, maybe I haven't heard about this actor in a while. That's another one. And when they all can kind of line up, you get something like everything everywhere all at once.
0: Yeah. And I love how efficient they were with this film. That's another kind of really inspiring thing about it, I think, because they didn't want to use uh, much green screen mm-hmm. for all the different location. I mean, there's just a ton of shots as all the characters are traveling throughout the multiverse. Mm-hmm. And for all the little background insert shots that they had to get, they didn't want to just use green screens. So they used what they called Swiss Army Knife locations where they could go film, you know, against one wall and then use another wall here or, or in the same facility use different sorts of backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And, and they were just kind of finding places in L.A. that were this versatile. And I thought that was really cool because, you know, this film is... Uh, it's obviously getting a lot of praise for the directing and writing, the, the concept of it. But really, uh, you know, in terms of the, the technical side of it, it's amazing what the production design team did. How they were able to create this sense of like a huge, vast universe with very little time and not a very big budget.
1: Well, you know, I think the time was 38, I'm not exactly sure, maybe 38 days of shooting, maybe a little more. Uh, but then also they had the luck to shoot this and wrap almost before everything shut down for COVID.
0: Just before COVID.
1: Um, I think they did have to do one of the last scenes or last couple shots uh, kind of adhering to COVID regulations, including not being able to shoot at the same location. So they had to do a little green screen work for that. Uh, But overall, they were able to shoot uh, in the before times. Uh, which is very nice. And because of that, not only did that keep costs down, which I think now is a good time to mention, uh, arguably this either cost around $14 million or $25 million between there uh, as a budget, which is, for those who might not know, very, very low. Uh, I believe Michelle Yeoh said that is like the craft service uh, budget for a Marvel film is yeah. what they spent on this entire movie.
0: Now, if this is like an in- independent drama Okay, that's a big budget. But mm-hmm. if you want to make like an action movie yes. of this size and this scale, it's a it's a very small budget.
1: It is really, really a modest budget. And they stretched it very well for many reasons, which uh, I'm sure we'll get into a little bit more. But the locations themselves, you know, they were lucky enough because... Uh, and this goes back to some of the way that we make film. Uh, you, There were little, you know, they're flexible. They don't need locations to be exactly as their script said Uh, luckily they were able to write the script and kind of shape the film around the locations so if something didn't work they could be a little flexible with maybe changing something around Uh, and that adaptability is the reason they were able to make I think uh, a movie this uh big at that small of a budget
0: yeah and they used this um office building that i think had once once housed one of the big financial institutions Mm. i think one of them that was responsible for the 2008 crash okay (laughs) and they're able to use different rooms in this building in a in a really efficient way so that was really cool i also want to talk a little bit about the costumes of the film because there's a ton of costumes in this as well And some of the more futuristic costume designs were actually inspired by uh, Jodorowsky's The Holy Mountain.
1: Oh, yes. And, uh, you know, it is also being mentioned that uh, because of, you know, maybe that inspiration, also the style of the movie, uh, they're all put in that maximalist film category. Uh, The Holy Mountain falls in there. A couple of Jean-Luc Godard films fall in there. Uh, Maximalist film is uh, kind of more is more. Like, the bigger, the better. More is more. And uh, in The Holy Mountain, of course, you have all these wild themes. Uh, Again, some interesting match cuts in that movie. Um, But overall, it is a very surrealistic expression of film. And they kind of take that to the max here as well. Uh, Definitely some of the... I guess you would call it um, a cult of the bagel, if you will, scenes mm-hmm. with the white and the black. Uh, the everything bagel. The everything bagel. Uh, that location and the set design reminded me of Holy Mountain, as well as some of the other alternative worlds, um, even if they were only for a frame like a split second yeah uh there is a lot going in and that's one thing that you know kind of ties in location costume design some of these locations costume designs they were only on screen for less than a second yeah and the amount of work that you'd have to do to create just that little you know little bit uh to convey just that little bit more is another reason why this movie is impressive to me Uh, Because even down to those small frames, they put in lots of effort uh, in shooting, you know, a split second here and a split second there.
0: And we should also mention as well the fight choreography, the stunt coordination for this as well, because that's really cool. It was done apparently uh, by Timothy Ulrich in collaboration with Andy and Brian Lee. And these guys, if you haven't heard of them, are two YouTubers, actually, who specialize in old school Hong Kong action Mm. Sequences and stuff like that, and apparently uh, Daniels literally like messaged them on Facebook Messenger and said, "Hey, I know you don't think this is real, but this is actually us. We would love for you to work in this film. It was their first Hollywood film."
1: Yeah, and uh, you know the reason they went outside the box and uh, chose that is because they wanted something that is uh, a little bit unique, and it's definitely reflected in the fight scenes. Uh, Different from, I guess, the stunt coordinators and people in the industry nowadays, they could have had anyone, you know, they had, like I said, uh, executive producers, uh, the Russo brothers, so they had access to all the Marvel stunt coordinators, they pretty much had their choice. Uh, but instead they wanted to go, I'm sure budget was a part of it, but uh, they went a little bit more unusual or uncommon, you know, you don't usually pick uh, some YouTubers to be your stunt coordinators for a multi-million dollar film. Uh, That being said, they worked together, they loved it, they had some good energy, and the final result, uh, and I don't know if you Agree. I mean, I thought it was great because one, they were actually in the movie cast as uh some of the guards, some of the other people who were kind of being transplanted. Uh and they were able to also make those guys their day because they idolize all these Hong Kong, you know, action movies and yes. Michelle Yeoh, they got to do a scene with her and have a yes. fight with her, which is like probably the I don't mean that could be the whole cake, not just the icing.
0: Yeah, and they said there, there's a lot of easter eggs like uh Throwbacks to movies she was in. They're making specific references to Hollywood films, or Hong Kong films, rather, that she has been in, as well as Jackie Chan and Stephen Chow and, and people like that. Uh, it's also worth mentioning, too, the visual effects of this, too, uh, that were handled by a very small team of people, anywhere between five and seven. Uh, counts seem to differ on this, but a very small team of basically self taught people who were using really interesting kind of creative techniques to avoid the typical CGI green screen sort of thing.
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, they said they had like seven people uh, and they were their friends. Uh, Those people also happened to be filmmakers. Um, And again, the difference is if you're a director and you're making visual effects for someone else, especially friends, you know, they worked on music videos together. Um, when you get someone like that, you can have seven people, you break up uh, over the five mean 500 plus visual effects shots, and you kind of manage it. But the way that they worked is they just kind of worked together. Uh, You know, instead of one location in London and another in India and kind of all over the place, they're in the same space, they're able to work together. And then even after the pandemic started, they I believe started uh, something similar to a Dropbox where they had access to people's Uh, hard drives and, you know, desktops, and they're able to have this very free flow, creative work. uh, And it made the whole process that much more intimate, which is good. And that much more connected, which means that uh, I think this is a very unique style. Maybe it'll be adopted more. But again, we have, you know, experience. This is kind of lower budget experience when you have to do things by yourself. And, you know, it seems like a lot of these people they worked with uh, had that same kind of passion and it really bled through into or onto the
0: screen. Well, we've both kind of experienced versions of that, working together, making films ourselves. Um, You as a producer, me as a director, and a cinematographer as well. Uh, Because there are a lot of times where it's either like, okay, you either do it the way you originally planned, or you don't do it at all. Because that's not the reality of what we have to work with right now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, hearing what Daniels did in this film is very inspiring. Because you realize there are ways to kind of use the power of independent film to your advantage, you know, the smaller crew sizes, the tight knit sense of community that you have in a film like this, the sense of enthusiasm that you only get when it's a group of friends working together. You can't get this on this kind of industrial Marvel scale, or at least it's very hard to.
1: It is very hard to, and at the same time, when you have something as, uh, you know, kind of close-knit as this, it's uh, inspiring for other visual effects artists, you know, some people have said that it's hard to get into the industry, a lot of rejections, and this movie shows that what seven people can do, uh, again, self-taught, like you mentioned, uh, they're able to take on such a big project and make it look really, really great, of course, you know, a lot of talent involved and skill and practice. Um, and, you know, I think this goes back to, I believe uh, one of the Daniels was an animator uh, and the other one was into improv. Uh, and so when you combine the two, you get some people who were, you know, working together. Also, they just know how films are constructed. They can work structured, or they can also work very loose. That's why they're a good team. Uh, But then when you include all their friends, you know, different animators, other people in the business, you get a lot of, uh, you know, passionate people doing what they love. And I'm just glad that this movie uh, really paid off in spades for them.
0: Yeah, me too, me too. Uh, One final little factoid to mention, a recent screening for Academy voters apparently made Park Chenu cry.
1: Ah, yes. uh, That's
0: that's what he said.
1: I mean, I'm I'm sure we're going to hear a lot of it from so many other... I mean, we can talk about other people who really love the film, uh, many different critics, many... Of course, there's representation on many levels, uh, which makes it uh, very, very appealing uh, to the masses, but also... You know, just because they are kind of showing off their skills, people really appreciate good filmmaking, and I think they have a lot of that in spades. Of course, we can debate that in a little bit, but, you know, when you pick up the attention of some of the biggest directors, uh, you're going to, of course, you know, make some waves, and that's what they're doing right now.
0: Yeah, and actually, I think it would be a good point right now to get into that. We've talked a lot about the good points of the film, uh, things we appreciate about the making of the film and whatnot. And I wanted to kind of, you know, put that out there first before we get into a debate over the the merits of the film, Mm -hmm. what it's actually about, if it actually achieves what it sets out to do, and why it's being received so well. Because as we mentioned before, you're a a huge fan of the film. I'm not so big of a fan. I was kind of critical of it. Mm -hmm. And I thought it'd be really interesting to get into what this wild, insane movie is actually about. Because in a way, it purports to be about, you know, the multiverse and, you know, possible realities and, and how that, uh, you know, the craziness of, of this sort of multiverse world um, relates to a, a family. Yes. And their own kind of personal experiences and relations, interge- uh, intergenerational conflicts and whatnot. So if I were to put it to you, what do you think this movie, after having seen it about four times, mm-hmm. is ultimately about?
1: Well, you know, I believe that they are trying to weave in a couple different storylines, of course, about intergenerational trauma and inherited trauma that's passed down. That being said, it's also very, of course, nihilistic. And that's one of the main plot points in the film is that either nothing matters or everything matters, and then you need to be able to differentiate between the two. Uh, And more, you know, along those lines, they include science as well, uh, some multiverse stuff. They definitely consulted with You know, just kind of, I don't know if they actually consulted with scientists, but it seems like they read about the multiverse, about the different levels, different scientific theories. Uh, But at its heart, I do think it is a story about a family. And if you strip down all of the, you know, glitz and glitter, it's just about, you know, accepting your family for who they are, enjoying the good moments, uh, even though most of, you know, there could be a lot of bad moments in the world we currently exist in isn't exactly you know, ideal. That being said, you know, this was made before COVID. Uh, who would have predicted, uh, you know, a, a global pandemic would happen? Uh, but that kind of even resonates even harder because of it. Uh, you know, the with the pandemic, they were able to kind of show people or give them a little bit of hope. I think that's kind of one of the bigger messages. Uh, But we can jump into more specifics. I do want to start off by saying that, you know, listening to some interviews with uh, the Daniels, they were talking about how oftentimes they start a movie with a question, like a nihilistic question, you know, uh, if nothing matters or if, you know, everything exists and nothing matters and why is anything important. And then they go in search of the answer. Not that they have the answer themselves, Uh, But they go in search of it. Of course, there are themes, uh, and you could even, you know, we can get into bigger or smaller themes, uh, and also things that people have put on to them. Uh, Even after watching the film, they said they've read reviews and heard accounts and people relating to it in different ways. Um, But at its heart, I think it is a question Uh, That they're looking for an answer and it has to do with uh, those big questions about the universe, about why we're here, about does anything we do even matter and this can be looked at from like a very big level about your entire life, it can look at it as like a filmmaker, you know, like will anyone even see this film, you know, is it even going to make anything happen. Uh, and kind of go into that, so I think that's a good point for you know how I feel about the movie, especially nowadays. Especially just watching that recently, uh, I felt like going in and you know kind of pondering that question. You know, does any of it really matter? Uh, you can see they're kind of I guess wrestling with that. You know, from a little bit pessimistic to more optimistic, but maybe not fully you know, happy ending, if you will, and we'll talk about that, but uh, there is something there about this nihilistic approach and, uh, you know, kind of the optimism that could be found in the everything bagel.
0: Okay, okay, yeah, and that's that's a really uh, well-made case, I think, for for that interpretation of the film. I had a slightly different interpretation, actually a very different interpretation of the film. And it's something that struck me around the the first 30 minutes of the film as I was watching it. Mm. And I felt like, and again, I was watching this with the idea that this movie was like already being very well received and Mm -hmm. and, and hearing all the superlatives about the film. And it kind of struck me at the beginning of the films uh, or at the beginning of the film, that the Daniels had kind of found a way, a really brilliant way, I think, to kind of hijack contemporary online viewing habits in, in service of a narrative feature film. Ooh. Because, you know, a lot of the subtext, I think, for making movies today and, and watching how they're received by people, uh, it's kind of like, okay, movies are now competing against social media and against the internet, and against YouTube, and all these other forms of content for viewers' attention. And I felt like, in a way, one of the reasons maybe why the movie has been received so well, is that it kind of found a way to hijack what people naturally veer towards when they view social media content, but get them to kind of invest in a narrative film. But then that got me thinking more about what is the movie actually about? Because it's one thing to be able to use this device, uh, but what's it being used for? I mean, you already kind of mentioned before that, uh, you know, the multiverse concept, the device has been used by Marvel mm-hmm. uh, on a number of films. And I think really their use of it is more cynical. I, I think they're probably using it just to make sure that the. How many different versions of Spider Man are there now? How many reboots have we had? Four? Yeah, Three?
1: Well, you know, where I believe on our third or fourth Spider-Man if you don't count the animated you know of course they just brought them together so Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield and Tom Holland and then uh, it can go off from there into animated versions but right you know it is uh, again being connected uh, and you know I get what you're saying about it the multiverse uh, you were saying that it's kind of representing just our online habits
0: well it's kind of like I felt like okay if you ever gone down a YouTube rabbit hole mm-hmm. Or if you've ever just kind of you know sat there for hours binging content, scrolling through different you know, feeds, mm. it's kind of like that. The way they use the multiverse in this is kind of like just you know going down these rabbit holes or, or scrolling through uh, you know, all this disparate content that they have online. And it's very dazzling mm-hmm. when you see this play out. And when you kind of realize, or at least for me, when I realized that this is what they're doing, this is how they're using this, um, the problem is, for me, I think they're ultimately using this, the the multiverse device, the concept, as a metaphor for how awful life in the internet age has become. Okay. And this is not... So, okay, I kind of had this idea, you know, to start with. I had this kind of feeling. Then I went out and, and heard... There are actually other people who've kind of made this point. I mean, there's a, a YouTuber, Thomas Flight who's kind of made a similar point in a Mm -hmm. video essay. He takes a a different uh, kind of approach. He thinks that this is kind of a good point of the film. It's a merit of the film. And uh, Daniel Scheinhardt has actually made a a similar statement in in an interview with Slash Film. And I'm going to quote him at length here, because I think this is a really important point. Okay. So he says, quote, we've talked a lot about what it's like to have grown up with the internet, And how that exacerbated the typical generational divide. And what it feels like for everyone, no matter uh, how old you are, to live right now with the internet. So that's one of the key metaphors, was just like, we wanted the maximalism of the movie to connect with what it's like to scroll through an infinite amount of stuff, which is something we're all doing too much, end quote. And so with that, for me, it kind of confirmed that this was in large part a metaphor for the internet, and what it's like to be overwhelmed by the internet. The problem, ultimately though, is that this is a movie that's supposed to be about the universe, about infinite possibilities, possible worlds, big-picture questions about the nature of reality. And I think ultimately the movie doesn't really have anything to say about these things, Because it's not really interested in uh, exploring anything outside of the social dimensions of being online.
1: Mm, See, I think I would interpret that a little bit differently. Um, For me, when I think about it, I would kind of, I guess, say that's how they're connecting to their audience. Now, not that they were trying to, you know, sway Oscar votes when they made this. They definitely... Or not. I mean, you wouldn't have some of the parts of this movie (laughs) involved if you're trying to win an Oscar, for example. Uh, But that being said, they are appealing to a generation, like he mentioned, uh, raised on the Internet and made a movie for them. Now, yes, it does involve a lot of similar habits people have when they're scrolling, including the sex, you know, that you come across. Uh, it's not like, you know, very overt in this movie, although there are butt plugs and dildos, um, (laughs) which people probably see on a regular base basis, scrolling through, you know,
0: YouTube rabbit
1: holes or whatever. You're bound
0: to encounter something like that if you're online long enough.
1: If you're online long enough. Um, but I think he was using it to say that this is, you know, a film for people who are raised on it and also showing that, you know, for example, even parents who are, you know, I guess represented as uh, Evelyn and uh, Waymond, uh, you know, who aren't really technologically savvy, uh, and how they kind of navigate through this, and the gap between the two, um, you know, they do ask some big questions about the universe, about this uh, nihilism, uh, you know, what matters, but at the same time, uh, and as far as using it to comment about you know, the internet and outside of uh, social media and how damaging it could be. I don't think they are trying to, you know, make, you know, the comment of, all oh, screen time is like kind of killing our children or whatever. But more in the sense of this, how do we understand generationally the people who never grew up with the internet? Or, you know, for example, when we were growing up, we are almost the same age, uh, we were able to, you know, uh, kind of grow up without the internet. Then the internet was slowly integrated into our lives. Uh, you know, you would surf it when you were in the 90s. um, Mm -hmm. And it was something that you could do instead of it being like, you know, you mentioned everything that in the title, everything everywhere all at once. Um, And then also another reflection in the multiverse is that, you know, some people would uh, believe that we are in an age where it is like the multiverse, you know, the internet is the multiverse. And, uh, you know, you have access to all this information, you could be different people. You know, I think they called it like, You know, global dating or something where you can, you know, check out dating, you know, change your VPN and date other people or look at other people from other countries and see what Mm -hmm. it'd be like to date those lives, be in that kind of world. And so, uh, with that, you know, all, all that being said, I think that they are asking the big questions, but I don't think they're just, you know, kind of pandering to the, younger generation and kind of bringing them in. I think they're commenting about the gap between the people who grew up without the internet and the age that we're living in.
0: And you're listening to an edited version of this podcast. To hear the full version, go to patreon.com slash dark. You can not only hear the full version of this episode, but other episodes as well, and you can get access to our full back catalog too. Uh, we go for about an hour and a half on this episode, and I also recorded some additional content in light of the 11 Oscar nominations that this film got recently for the Academy Awards. So, if you want to hear the full almost hour and a half episode, go to patreon.com slash nowitsdark. I think one thing we can close on is this idea of why it's become so popular, because I think this is a very relevant question and a good one to ask leading into award season. And I, I kind of have my own theory for this. I mean, Mike and I uh, recently did this interview with John Gunnison, uh, and you can check that out. But one of the things we talked about in this interview is the idea that—and this is an article in the New York Times, an opinion piece by Ross Douthat, where he kind of makes the case that, listen, movies have lost their place as the main popular art form of our day, and it's been replaced by social media. Which means that movies now kind of have to appeal more to, you know, the sorts of norms and values of social media. And as a result, I think movies are discussed less as cinema. You know, we judge them less in terms of their cinematic merit, uh, their technical merit, and more in terms of kind of currency on social media. And so I think that's one reason why the movie has found a lot of success amongst fans. I mean, there's a lot of merits to the film. I don't want to discount them all. I do think it's overhyped. I do think it's, you know, it's it's been really overpraised. I, I don't think it deserves a lot of the hyperbole that it's gotten. But when you look at it through this perspective of kind of movies being displaced by social media, um, one thing that you have to kind of consider is that, you know, movies that do cater to the social media age, that are kind of talking about or finding metaphors for what life is like online, which in some way, you know, this movie does, and which highlights issues that are, are really popular on social media, like identity and mental illness and gender issues, um, that of course, they're going to resonate more with People today, because social media is kind of the main, if not art form, media form of our day, or a main medium of our day.
1: Uh, you know, I think uh, kind of the opposite. In, I don't think it's going to be remembered as. Uh, you know, piece of its time in the way that like her, for example, is, you know, more, I guess, of its time. And I get, you know, when people first started interacting with Siri and getting ideas about AI, um, I do think it's going to be aged and remembered as more of a family piece. And the issues of, you know, trauma uh, are also still going to be around probably in 10 or 20 or 30 years. And, you know, communicating with older generations. Uh, the reason why I think it's so successful though is because it does allow an entry point for many people to take a look at this uh whether you're a parent and you know you're bringing a child into an indifferent world post-covid Uh, That's something that people definitely worry about. Uh, Also, if you're trying to express yourself as, you know, maybe the immigrant story, like you said, uh, of course, nowadays, there are going to be even more people trying to uh, communicate, build communities. In the end, though, I do think that this movie has a lot to say about, you know, not just be kind and everything's going to be okay, but, you know, nothing really matters. So why not be kind was kind of the overall arc. And uh, I do think that in the end of the film, they don't actually end it with everyone is you know super happy. They're still getting audited. I think they're they're at the tax office. She still says kind of. You know, like weird, not weird, but, uh, you know, kind of comments about uh, her girlfriend, her daughter's girlfriend's hair. Um, You know, there is still probably going to be fat shaming uh, involved. But again, (laughs) that's a way for people to connect, especially people who, you know, maybe don't get to see their story posted. If you think about how many great immigrant story, modern immigrant stories there are. Uh, that don't try to, you know, be Oscar bait or, you know, try to do other things, even, you know, kind of white savior things, but just are about that experience.
0: Eric, I want to thank you for joining us today. Um, You offered a lot of great insight and I'd love to have you back on.
1: All right. I'd love to come back.
0: And for everyone listening, uh, thank you for joining us. Once again, you can hear the full episode on Patreon. Check out patreon.com slash dark, or follow the link in the description box. Also, you can listen to other our other episodes wherever podcasts are found. Our full uh, backlog, I guess, of, of episodes, all of our episodes are available only on Patreon, but you can still find some episodes and uh, shortened versions of each episode available for free. Also, be sure to check out our YouTube channel, Now It's Dark, for visual essays on some of these podcasts, as well as some exclusive content. And once again, thank you for joining us.